Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Listener Mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Monday. Time for the Listener Mail. Uh, I just want to say the Listener Mail you have sent us. That's sort of redundant, isn't it? The mail you have sent us. We're going to read it to you. Are you ready? Let's get right into it. Yes. I mean, listener mail is sent. It does not emerge spontaneously. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it could, but that w- we would get so much just completely nonsensical uh, listener mail. It would only be on rare occasions that, that coherent sentences would form if we were just pulling them out of the abyss. <laughs> uh, Rob, do you want to do this first one from David? Sure. This one comes to us from David, and uh, this is what David has to say. Hello there, Robert, Joe, and Seth. I am a sixth-grade English teacher in North Texas and wanted to thank you guys for providing such great content. Our curriculum in my school district includes a section about science fiction, and we read the terrific short story Key Item by Isaac Asimov. Not to give anything away, but the story is about an all-powerful computer that humans are dependent on refusing to complete any work until a very human-like key item is added to its programming. (laughs) Prior to reading the story aloud to my students, I listened to your episode, Punish the Machine, and I found that to be a terrific segue to have a discussion with my students about the future and legality of robots. I spoke about the interesting and thought-provoking questions you guys discussed in these episodes and managed to tie it in with the unfortunate incident that involved a Tesla and two people who sadly passed away after it drove into a tree. My students were really engaged in the conversation, and they themselves brought up some interesting questions and ideas about how the future involving robots may seem. Anyways, I just uh, once again wanted to thank y'all for the great content y'all have put out, and hopefully I've turned some of my students onto your podcast. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, David. Oh, thanks, David. Well, I'm curious now what questions your students brought up. I want to know like where, where the mind of a younger person goes with this. Yeah. And, you know, I don't remember Key Item. I don't know if I've read that one. I, I did recently pick up iRobot, and I was just going to read some of it to uh, my son. And we started just on the first one in there. And it starts with like a, a little girl playing with a robot. And mm-hmm. uh, we read that part. But then it switched to like a, a like a stereotypical like 1950s um, dad reading a newspaper. It got mm-hmm. kind of boring quick. And then also I realized, oh, I don't know the story. Maybe I skipped, read, skipped this story when I read iRobot <laughs> back when I was a kid. So maybe I'll just come back and, and make sure I, I pick out a really good one uh, to introduce him to Asimov with. I think if that's the first one, I think that the little girl is the young Susan Calvin who grows up to become the robo-psychologist. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I guess I'm just more familiar with the later Susan Calvin stories. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I, I want to make sure that I, I read a really good one to him. Um, so I, I may skip around a bit. And I know super dark things don't usually happen in Isaac Asimov short stories, <laughs> but I also, I wasn't sure. It's like I'm just flying into this story with blinders mm-hmm. on. I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, I read those, uh, the iRobot stories when I was pretty young, and uh, I remember getting into them, even though thinking back on them now, I mean, they are all very interesting. Uh, sort of, they're very, I recall, uh, free of extraneous sort of literary detail. They're more, mm-hmm. they're sort of tight thought experiments, and they're kind of dry in that sense. Like, you're not going to get lots of descriptions of the feast and, and things right. like that. But he did, he liked the idea of the little girl playing with the robot, so. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, Should I do this next message about Dissolver of Worlds? Let's do it. Uh, 
This is from Brett, who's written in a bunch of times now about chemistry-related topics. Brett says, Hello, gentlemen. I hope this note finds you are well and enjoying life. Wanted to comment that that, that almost sounds like a threat. (laughs) I know you didn't mean it that way. Uh, Anyway, uh, wanted to comment briefly on your recent episode for Dissolver of Worlds, which was great, by the way. As a chemist, we use the phrase to dissolve as a way of using a solvent to break up a solid into its molecular entity. For instance, when you add sugar to coffee, yes, I'm writing this in the morning, the sugar dissolves into the hot aqueous solution. So what does dissolving mean? It refers to the ability of the solvent to break the bonds that form a crystal, so each sugar molecule now is surrounded by the aqueous constituents. Now, when you mentioned acids like HF or hydrofluoric acid, this is a different form of dissolving because something like hydrofluoric acid actually reacts with glass because of the strength of the silicon-fluorine bond, one of the strongest in chemistry. In essence, one is performing a chemical reaction or a chemical transformation because what comes out is different than what was put in. I've mentioned in the past that we use deuterated solvents in order to take an NMR, uh, that's nuclear magnetic resonance, of compounds that we make in order to characterize them. And if the solvent reacted with our compound, then we have a problem. As for a metaphor, dissolver of worlds would be more of how one substance is transformed into another, be it by an idea or physical manipulation, uh, but to simply dissolve would not change the substance at all at the atomic level. As a side note, if you take table salt and dissolve it in water and then let the water evaporate, sometimes you end up with these flat square crystals that are really cool looking. Yes, I've seen this before, Brad. Sometimes it can make um, uh, almost unsettling little pyramids uh, that are, you know, like what uh, the tardigrades have built as a monument to the soul of their dead king or something. <laughs> Uh, But uh, anyway, Brett finishes saying, thank you again for such great fodder for the mind. Looking forward to hearing your voices again next week. Cheers, Brett. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Amelia. Hi, Robert, Joe, and Seth. I've always really enjoyed the diversity of topics you cover in your show, and I really love hitting play and being surprised by the topics I hear throughout the day. I've learned so much. This is a huge throwback, but it was so surprised to find out that not everyone feels pain in their dreams. I have vivid memories of being sick, hurt, and even unbelievably tired in my dreams, though I rarely feel that way when I wake up. I'm really enjoying Weird House Cinema. I love cheesy horror movies, and these have all been right up my alley. I've been a sporadic listener for about three years now. I started listening when I took a job at an animal research facility to keep my mind busy during the surprisingly monotonous process of animal husbandry in a research setting. I've been meaning to write in to suggest you cover laboratory animal science as a topic on the show. You guys frequently reference papers which use research animals. I'm sure you would find it really interesting to delve into the history of animal research, how much of our daily lives has been improved due to their sacrifice. For example, the primates and ferrets whose sacrifice made the COVID vaccine available as fast as it was, and the alternative methods being researched to replace animals in medical research. I also think you guys would find a very eloquent way to discuss the controversy and ethics behind animal research. Research. While I'm on the topic, I'm absolutely sure that you would be able to make a great episode about compassion fatigue. 
While I experience it as an animal technician, vets, nurses, and various other professionals who care for people and animals which are sick and dying experience it as well. COVID has brought a little more attention to it, and I think you guys would really be able to make a good episode on the topic. I'm still trying to convince my fiancé that he would absolutely love your show and just saw that you did a two-parter on Star Wars Alien Necropsy. I think I may succeed tonight when I show him that. Thanks for all the info and laughs, Amelia. Sounds like a good bet, though I think you got to do more than show it to him. <laughs> Look, uh, well, I mean, I, I assume she means play it for him, but but uh, you know, uh, I, I, that's I, that's why we we try to do a variety of topics on the show. Is like we know that not not every uh, topic's going to be for every listener, but uh, you know, there are going to be some they're going to call to, uh, to 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 new listeners and, uh, and and old listeners alike. All right. Well, we got a few more dealing with the uh, Star Wars episodes. I wonder if you should read these, Rob, because these reference species from things that I have no idea about. Uh, Okay. Okay. All right. Well, here's the first one. This one comes to us from Jeff. Hi, guys. Love the two-parter on Star Wars alien biology. I have a couple of suggestions for alien species from the Star Trek universe whose biology might make a good discussion topic. Horta. Original series episode, Devil in the Dark, a silicon-based life form that secretes acid to dissolve solid rock, which it moves through. Every 50,000 years, all Horta die off, except for a single mother Horta, who watches over the next generation of eggs. Uh, uh, see some obvious biological parallels there. Yeah, and I've, I haven't seen a lot of original Trek. I'm not really an original Trek um, uh, fan, but I did watch this episode when I was a kid. I think I was staying with my aunt, and I got to... We, I got to to like, or maybe not. I don't know. This is one of the rare, there, there are only a couple of episodes I've seen, and this is one of them. Um, but I, I probably watched it when I was too young. It was maybe a little too uh, high-minded for like a, a little uh, little kid. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do remember the creature being uh, interesting. Luckily, the next um, uh, specimen that uh, Jeff brings up is from Next Generation, which I'm very familiar with. Um, uh, Jeff writes, Trill, introduced on The Next Generation, this species was further fleshed out uh, through the Deep Space Nine character Jadzia Dax. Trill are a joined species consisting of a long-lived slug-like symbiont living inside of a humanoid host body. A symbiont is transferred to a new host whenever the current one dies, preserving the memories of previous lifetimes which the host can draw upon. Hope you find this interesting. Keep up the great work. Jeff. Okay, so yeah, you did watch Next Generation. What's the deal with Trill? You you, you into these? Yeah, yeah. This is like a this and like Jeff said, these were there. There were certainly more of them on Deep Space Nine because because you had Dax, um, mm. and so it's like a humanoid um, and this slug like organism, and they form this symbiotic relationship and become one being, and uh, and so there. Uh, I don't remember all the details, but there are whole episodes where they get into sort of the the nature of this in their culture, the idea that that the, you will eventually fuse with this slug like creature and become one. Sounds fun. Yeah. All right. This one deals with, let's see, Star Wars Alien Necropsy and Weird House Cinema. It's from Tauntry. Tauntry says, Hey guys, I've been catching up on the Weird House Cinema episodes and just watched slash listened to the silent films double feature. I loved Cinderella particularly. Uh, My dad is a Balinese shadow puppeteer, so I've definitely seen Prince Ahmed, but I was unaware of Cinderella. 
One note, I think the magic tree she keeps talking to is supposed to be a willow tree growing on the grave of her dead mother in the Grimm's version, which is why it's growing in a graveyard, and the birds are kind of extensions of the tree and the soul of the dead mother. Uh, There are other Grimm stories with trees serving as vehicles of communication for the murdered people buried beneath, like the juniper tree. For more Lotta Reiniger-style animation, check out some of the Decemberists' videos, like their video for The Tane and The Bachelor and the Bride. Uh, I've actually seen the Decemberists in concert, so sometimes they do very theatrical stuff. And I have not watched these videos yet, but I, I think I've seen bits of them before, and I think they use this similar um, style, like silhouette animation, like she did. Anyway, Tantri goes on to say, As for Star Wars, you may already have this book, but if not, Rob, you and the boy will love it particularly. It is called The Wildlife of Star Wars, A Field Guide, and it is purely illustrations and creature factoids by Terry Whitlock, a creature designer for Star Wars slash Lucasfilm. I think the book is out of print, but you can still find often expensive copies online. It's worth it to get the hardcover purely because it's embossed like lizard skin, and I'm not sure if they did that with the paperback. Uh, And then she attaches a link. Yeah, so I immediately went out and ordered a copy of this. I, I got—I oh, yeah. didn't get the hardback. I—I I, I went a little cheap and went the got a used copy of the softback. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm excited to to get it in. I, I'm like I said, always game for a good monster uh, manual type book, monster biology, and certainly uh, any more uh, Star Wars alien uh, content. So may, maybe it'll aid us in a, a future return uh, to this topic. <laughs> All right, here is another uh, Weird House Cinema uh, response uh, that that largely deals with something that we've been, I don't even know if we started talking about this on Weird House Cinema or it is a just a conversation that keeps, uh, we keep going on listener mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Jamie writes in and says, Dear Robert and Joe, a quick piece of listener meta mail from Edinburgh here, weighing in on the question of why Sean Connery's Egyptian-come-Spanish character in Highlander speaks English with a Scottish accent. I think the answer is neither he nor Connor MacLeod are speaking English. As a 16th century inhabitant of the Scottish Highlands, MacLeod would almost certainly have been a speaker of Gaelic, and probably a monoglot one at that. Clan chiefs might have sent their sons south to learn English, but Connor, although a warrior, doesn't seem to be that far up the MacLeod hierarchy, and in any case, would not have spoken English in normal conversation. I think this is just one of those, actually in another language, but everyone speaks English moments in film. (laughs) Perhaps Ramirez has been around so long that he has become proficient in many languages, including Scottish Gaelic? It is odd that the Scottish actor is not playing a Scottish character, and the French actor, with undisguised accent, is, but there you go. In any case, the accent of Scottish Gaelic native speakers speaking English is quite distinctive and probably wouldn't be recognized as a Scottish accent by people outside of Scotland. Just a wee note on something that pricked my interest. Keep up the good work. It's a great podcast, Jamie. And yes, Jamie brings up a fabulous point. Uh, and one that I should have thought of, why on earth did I watch all those seasons of Outlander if I wasn't going to uh, you know, realize that, <laughs> that they, these characters would have been speaking Gaelic? Now, what if Highlander went in a more Outlander direction? Um, it could. It could easily. I'm surprised. Honestly, I'm, I'm surprised they had given the success of Outlander. Uh, they haven't done that. That's probably one of the the energies fueling these efforts to bring it back uh, in, you know, to some degree. It's like romance it up a bit, you know, make it a little more, uh, 
uh, you know, Scottish centric. Uh, yeah, it, it could work. I'm for it. All right, let's see. Maybe we should do together these next couple messages about um, about the humanoid, the Star Wars ripoff film mm. that we covered. I guess it'll be a couple of weeks ago now. Um, so the first one is from a listener calling themselves Trebek. Uh, I doubt that's the real name, but Trebek says, hello, guys. Uh, oh, and this is in response to us saying that uh, that Richard Keel and the humanoid never did the like heads bonking together move. That, mm-hmm. This is know. where a, a, a generally a giant character or a largest character, a strongman mm-hmm. character, will come up behind two stormtroopers or red shirt guards, grab mm-hmm. them by their heads, and conk them together like coconuts to knock them out. Right, uh, and we said uh, it's just disappointing that that never happened in the movie. Well, Trebek says we're wrong. Trebek says there is a Blanc the heads together moment in the humanoid. It is quick. It happens during the second attack of the humanoid while the troopers are climbing out of the speeder. I'm sorry that the, that doesn't narrow it down for me, so I don't know where in the movie this is. Um, uh, but uh, there is a line you can queue up if you can find it. Uh, Trebek says it's immediately after the he's rather irritated, isn't he? Line. Thank you for being awesome, Trebek. Oh no, thank thank you for being awesome and, po- and pointing pointing this out. Yeah, I I, uh, I I must have missed it. I must have been looking down or making a note or you know mm-hmm. checking something on IMDb related to the film. But I'm glad it's in there. I feel like the the universe makes sense again. What what is wrong with our brains that we you and I both watched the humanoid making notes? Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's a select a select few uh, yeah. uh, people have done that. I imagine. Uh, at uh, least making notes on the humanoid, studying this work. Yes, we're we're operating in a very uh, niche field, I would say. Uh, okay, but from there, uh, I'm going to jump straight down to this message from Kenneth, which is also about the humanoid. So Kenneth says, hi, Robin Joe. As always, I'm a sucker for a Star Wars clone, and I always loved Jaws as a Bond character, so on your recommendation, I thought I would give the humanoid a go. You commented that the opening text crawl made the universe feel small, and I would say that was pretty accurate. I found it interesting that this followed through into all aspects of the movie. And then we get examples. When the budget Star Destroyer passes slowly over the camera, they were trying to convey the same epic scale as Lucas, but later when Grawl's ship is landing on planet Nixon, you can see that it's only meant to be about 50 meters long. <laughs> Uh, the name of the movie made me pause for thought, as well as, obviously, Lady Agatha's incredible hair. And I remember that's uh, that's Barbara Bach's strange helmet-slash-hood-slash-hairdo in the mm-hmm. movie. Uh, it was kind of hard to tell which of the three it was. Now, regarding the name, the humanoid, Kenneth says, It occurred to me that the term humanoid normally describes a creature that shares our general body form. It's normally used to find what's most familiar about an alien. However, if Golob was originally human, then his transformation left him as human in form only. To become the humanoid was actually to diminish him. Hmm. I think that's right. 
My second thought was about that hairdo. I think Barbara Bach's character was meant to look like a snake. If you imagine a hooded viper or a cobra with its head down ready to strike, it looks very much like her coiffure. This perhaps tracks with the, quote, fangs in the life goo draining plastic maiden device. Uh, Remember, she was like a space bathroom. She was like sucking the life force out of Mm -hmm. the the local space peasants. Yeah, she needs to fix every day. Otherwise, she'll age minutes or, or, you know, centuries at a time. Right. Uh, But Kenneth also points out that the lower half of her costume has a scale-like pattern on the fabric. So I think you're on to something here, Kenneth. I think that went right over my head. Yeah, yeah, it totally makes sense now. Now, after this, Kenneth attaches a recommendation that has already been suggested for Weird House Cinema, and we've already talked about, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But uh, Kenneth is like, hey, do Lair of the White Worm. And I'm and I'm saying, Kenneth, we've already talked about we're going to do Lair of the White Worm. We love Lair of the White Worm. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's it's on the list. A lot of films on the list. And hey, we hear, heard from another listener who has a film to put on the list. And uh, I don't think this one was currently on said list uh, from Colm. Hey, guys, greetings from Dublin, Ireland. First time contacting you after many years of listening to your excellent podcast. Just came across a film while browsing the web that you might consider for Weird House Cinema. It's called Slugs and was released in 1988, according to IMDb. I've not seen it myself, but if you take one look at the poster attached, and I hope you will agree, it looks like a great candidate. On a separate note, I would love if you did an episode on lighthouses. I've always loved them, and I know it is a topic you both could easily do a few episodes on, as there would be so much to talk about. Anyway, keep up the great work. All the best from Colm, a.k.a. Synthetic Flesh. Synthetic Flesh. Wait, we've had a listener adopt the moniker Synthetic Flesh? Is is Colm asking his friends and family to call him Synthetic Flesh now? I don't know. I mean, go for it. Go for it. Anything it. That, that, uh, that injects it into uh, popular usage. Um, so Slugs, 1988. This is a film that uh, I have seen parts of, and you have perhaps seen the whole thing. I think so. So a uh, first major note, this is actually directed by Juan Piquer Simon, or Simon with an accent over the second O. I guess that'd be Simone. Um, the director of none other than Pod People, the immortal classic, the uh, the the film that gave us uh, "Hear the Engines Roll Now" or yes. uh, "Flying Idiot Over Trout." Control now. Yeah. Idiot control now. Uh, all I want to feel is the wind in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that great. Great movie. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> a classic MST episode. I, I think I actually watched this movie way back when we, we used to do a thing where we would do, we would, oh, we did some live video streaming when the company was trying to experiment with that. Uh, that. That didn't really go much of anywhere, but we tried to have fun with it by talking about uh, trailers for, it was sort of a precursor of Weird House Cinema, but uh, mm-hmm. not as fully formed because we we were trying to just sort of like, live stream talking about trailers for movies that were related to episodes we had recently done. And so I think you and Christian had done an episode about gastropods. So we ended Mm -hmm. up talking about like slug and snail movies and I watched slugs or at least watched part of slugs. It's, uh, it, it doesn't take much to imagine what it's about. It is about people getting attacked by slugs. One of the weirdest things about this is, okay, that sounds like a standard creature B horror movie. This is actually based on a novel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's uh i don't know you wouldn't imagine a, a novel uh needed as a foundation for this kind of film 
I used to be somewhat grossed out by slugs, and I think this was the reason that I definitely didn't watch it in full for for that. Also, we weren't in the habit of of everyone watching every film because we were trying to mm-hmm. like shoehorn three or four uh, yeah. movie discussions into a single like twenty minute uh, video or something. It was. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it was a bit much. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I remember seeing a trailer for this one on VHS when I was a kid and it frightened me because there's a scene where they're climbing on the toilet. And so Mm. I I think for, for years, even, even today, there's like a part of me that, that insists that I check for slugs on the toilet, um, before I make use of a toilet, because I feel like that movie taught me that there was always going to be a chance. What would happen if the slugs got you? I mean, the slugs wouldn't get you. <laughs> the thing, they, I don't think they're really interested in you. Um, but and that's why it's so ludicrous, right? Like mm-hmm. it's something that some of us are repulsed by. We can find slugs repulsive, uh, which isn't completely fair. Slugs do good work; they're decomposers. You know, they, they, we need them. Um, but we take this idea of they're kind of yucky, and then we 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 put that through the the horror machine, and comes out with they want to eat our flesh. Now, in this poster for Slugs by Juan Piquer Simon, uh, I, I got to point out one little problem, which is it looks like the slugs are coming out of the screaming man instead of going into him. And I, mm-hmm. I don't recall the movie involving internal implantation of slugs that burst forth from the body, though I could be I could be forgetting. Yeah. Well, you know, they it, 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 you often see see that, right? Uh, either either they even if they didn't have it in the film, like you got to juice it up for the poster. Mm hmm. But hey, you know, it's uh, it's 2021. I have so many real things to be afraid of now. I'm totally game to uh, to return to slugs if we want to. Maybe I'll become afraid of slugs again. I actually, I kind of like that. Yeah. Sometimes I I fantasize about becoming, uh, about, about my anxieties, uh, moving uh, back to things that don't exist, like yeah. uh, slugs and alien abductions and whatnot. I'm like, oh man, what a time that was. Wait, that don't exist? Oh, you mean are not actually threatening, like slugs? Right. I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, slugs trying to eat your flesh doesn't exist. Uh, now, yes. granted, uh, yeah, alien correct. abduction phenomena, alien abduction experiences can be real as i want to as i've stressed before they can be real they can be experiences that people have i don't do not believe in the reality of 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 alien abduction so i don't think it's something that i should fear as part of my daily life but i did go through a period of time uh when i was uh, much younger uh, mm-hmm. i guess when i was a kid where i'd seen too many episodes of unsolved mysteries and became rather um afraid of that happening to me oh uh, yeah yeah, because they, they was, really play it up. They make it scary on Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, they really play it up. And, you know, I think back to the, the, the Unsolved Mysteries era where they were really hitting you with, I think they had some Sasquatch-style stuff, but they also mm-hmm. had the alien abduction. Between that and reruns of In Search Of, that it, it really, I feel like, kind of put out a harmful vibe because oh, yeah. there wasn't, I, I wasn't watching, like, skeptical counterpoints to any of this, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I well, didn't and- see... And they played it alongside true crime stories. Yeah. So like, yeah. So it was like, this is really happening. This is something you should really be afraid of. And and I I'm, I mean, I guess there were programs like, I don't remember if Contact went into this at all. And you had Sagan bringing his, um, you know, sensible um, approach to the topic. But mm-hmm. I do not remember anything on TV uh, coming out and saying, actually, there's no evidence for this. There's some other explanations uh, that can uh, uh, that, that can explain it. Uh, there was none of that. It was just unsolved mysteries and creepy music making you fear the sky at night. 
I think I've said this on the show before, but whoever composed that Unsolved Mysteries theme should like get a get a lifetime achievement award for making ice water run through people's veins. <laughs> uh, let's get a little sting of that. Ooh. Yeah, it's creepy. Too creepy. Okay, you mind if I do this one last message from James? Go for it. Uh, oh, this is a result of... We've had several back and forths with James now after having uh, read his messages on previous episodes. James was the one with uh, stuff about the TurboGrafx-16 games and about geckos. Uh, so James says, good afternoon, gentlemen. You just made my day again. Thank you. Uh, that's a great eye and equally great knowledge of the video games of yesteryear. That is indeed a poster of the very poochy Gex adorning the back of my real Gecko's habitat. Oh, so you were right, Rob. That was not a fake Gecko. That was a real Gecko. Okay. But Gex is absolutely the, the poochy of the reptile world. Uh, so James continues, the game featured the voice of comedian Dana Gould, who delivered pop culture one-liners roughly on par with the one you ad-libbed during the podcast about uh, the Fonz jumping the shark. Uh, the quips did not become any more amusing after hearing them repeated hundreds of times over the course of the game, but I somehow still have rather fond memories of playing it. Man, that's the thing I think uh, a lot of game designers did not get early on that like games that have dialogue that uh, that occurs like once are, you know, those can be fun. That adds a lot of texture to the game. But where I don't know the Bubsy style thing where the the, the character just sort of like repeats a, a cycle of, of one liners over and over. And it sounds like Gex did the same thing. God, that's got to really get under your skin after a certain period of time. Yeah, even on uh, even on really well crafted games with fun quips, like the the video game Control has some fun quips from the the character you control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you hear it enough, it's you, you kind of get over it. It's, it's one of the reasons I often find myself playing video games um, on mute with music playing over them. Uh, it, <laughs> it's just uh, after a while, I just uh, I just need my own sonic realm. Mm-hmm. Oh, finally, James asks if we have any podcast merch available. He says, I'd love to kick you guys a few bucks for a sticker or something to show my appreciation for all the content you've provided. Uh, and it'd be a lovely addition to my Gecko's Terrarium. Thanks again and take care, James. Uh, we, we do have some merch. Yeah, I guess we haven't talked about it much recently. Yeah, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that will send you to the iHeart listing for this page, and there's a store button there. Uh, we have a T Public store. You can also go to, I think it's tpublic.com slash stores slash stufftoblowyourmind. And yeah, we have a number of things. We have, you know, you can get our lo- our show logo on various bits of merch, including shirts and pillows and pins and stickers. Uh, we also have some sort of fun designs here. There's a really cool uh, Pandora's box uh, t-shirt uh, design that Red Buffalo Illustration did for us. There's a Medusa one that my son drew. Uh, there's uh, we we also have some that I think are legitimately uh, nifty t-shirts. And hopefully, in the very near future, we're going to be able to add uh, some Weird House Cinema merch uh, in there as well. Oh, cool! Yeah, I actually wear our Sphere Catastrophique shirt a good bit. Oh, cool! My my son has the Skug King of the Rats shirt, as mm-hmm. well as the Squirrels Are Not What They Seem shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wears those a lot. Um, uh, those are a lot of fun. Oh, the Skug the Skug shirt is a good one too. That's like a squirrel uh, death metal. Yeah, cover. Yeah, death metal occult skull. A squirrel, death metal occult uh, squirrel. Yeah. 
So, yeah, uh, check that out if you're interested in uh, picking up a little merch. Uh, you know, we mostly do it. Really, the merch is, is mostly for fun. Uh, so we should mention it more often so that people who want to, uh, to, to do that can, can do it. All right, we're going to ha- go ahead and have uh, Carney the Mailbot close it off there, but we have more listener mail to get to in the future. More listener mail is going to come in, and certainly send it in if you have responses to anything we, dis- uh, we discussed here. Do you have further thoughts on Sean Connery's accent in Highlander? <laughs> we would, of course, love to hear it. Uh, new, new episodes you want to hear, topic suggestions, corrections, uh, added insight from your life, your research, your world. Send it on in. Uh, and in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of, well, Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail, that comes out on Mondays. Core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Wednesdays, we throw in The Artifact, a nice little short-form bit of information. And on Fridays, that's Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just talk about a weird movie at length. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.